Danielle. I'm going to kind of get right into it um, because I think that this conversation really speaks for itself. And um, my guest today, Hanif, he can definitely say anything better than I could possibly say, um, you know, in the intro of this episode. Because he's been working, Hanif Fazal has been working tirelessly for over 20 years to create spaces that are um, comfortable for people regardless of their identity and help create spaces that allow people to thrive and feel like they actually matter regardless of background um, and, you know, regardless of identity. Um, He's just doing such amazing work. And he has a book out called An Other World, and he's the co-founder of the Center for Equity and Inclusion. He works with organizations, school districts, foundations, and community leaders to strategically and urgently advance equity and inclusion efforts. And um, I loved this conversation. I love these kinds of conversations because as a parent, um, as someone with the platform that we have, uh, you know, as someone who is just kind of always trying to work on myself and realize that, you know, we all have so much work to do um, in the space of equity and inclusion, no matter, you know, whether we, even if, I don't care how good a human we are, you you still have to work on it. Um, And so this conversation and conversations like this help to open up some ideas and actionable tips for what can we actually be doing, right? What small, even, you know, tiny, minute changes can we make right now in our homes, our classrooms, our workplaces, our community centers, um, you know, our places of worship, all the things, all the places, so that people, regardless of identity, thrive and feel like they actually matter, Um, And so, you know, I think it's so incredible that Hanif Fazal has really dedicated his life to this, um, and he is working tirelessly to make these spaces more comfortable for everyone. Um, And we talk a lot about why it's so important to have these conversations, not just with kids, um, even though that is really important. It is really important to have these in the workplace and in adult spaces. And we talk a lot about that because so many of us grew up never learning about any of this. Um, How do we create spaces for people, you know, no matter where, in a restaurant, in a library, in a mall, that just makes someone feel welcomed and safe, regardless of, you know, who they are, their background, their sexual orientation, whatever it is, what small actionable changes can we make? Um, So I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation. um, Hanif says so many, he just has so many morsels of knowledge and strategy that really will help no matter, you know, if you're a parent, um, a boss, a business owner, whatever it is, please take the time, listen, um, check out his new book and other world, uh, and go look him up because, uh, he's doing amazing things. So enjoy this conversation. All right. Well, welcome Hanif. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm so happy you're here. Um, I was just saying, I follow you on Instagram and, um, I'm always looking for, uh, you know, people to follow who are in the the space of, you know, diversity and equity and inclusion. Um, and, you know, I have to say a lot of times it's women, right? I feel like I follow a ton of women in that space, um, you know, and not as many men. Uh, would, would you agree with that statement? A hundred percent. One of the things that is frustrating to me and um, super noticeable Uh, You know, I do, there's a, one of the things that I do is a week long training about four or five times a year with people who are leading D&I work, diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And this could be in their organizations and their school buildings. It could be wherever, Um, but they're, and it is so predictable. 
Um, at this point, it's just what we've come to expect that, you know, of 25 people or 30 people in a room that we might have three men um, and the rest women. And we say this again and again, it's just um, one of the things that to me, one of the things that we've done with men and, uh, and especially in social justice movements is we've kind of they've been the ones who've been on the pedestal. They've been the ones who kind of been making the speeches and we kind of glorify um, and not to minimize the contributions of the of men and men of color who've done really amazing things. But in every movement, what you'll see is women really are the ones who've been not just behind the scenes, but right alongside. And part of the way sexism, I think, has really worked is that women have never really got the standing credit or have really been acknowledged for the role they've played in massive movements in our country. And it shows up again and again. And so I see it in our our trainings that we do, that women are the ones really pushing. Women are the ones who are really challenging. Women are the ones who are really risking. I'm not saying like in totality, certainly men are doing it. And yet men continue to get the standing in organizations. And so I feel like as men, we're quick to take the promotion or get into those leadership spots. But when it comes to then advocating on behalf of whatever gender equity or racial equity or whatever it ends up being, we tend to be slower to the punch. And um, so I'm not surprised. It's frustrating. And as I, 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 um, I personally feel it's part of my role to be challenging other men in the space to be saying, like, where are you in this conversation? Right. Right. Like <clears throat> outside of just being in a leadership, like on the day to day, where are you challenging? Where are you challenging yourself? Um, opening doors, all of that kind of stuff. So not at all surprised that. Yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was, uh, you know, I was excited and happy when I found, um, you know, your, your account, because I do think that first of all, I, you know, I have three kids, I have a girl and two boys. And um, a lot of times I'm always trying to include things in in our home and and all of that. And for the boys, sometimes, you know, I feel like that as far as social justice goes, um, and we are a pretty active family with just social justice and everything there, they, there's, they see women everywhere in that, you know, they see, um, you know, when we go to marches or we go um, to, I mean, there are men there, don't get me wrong, but, you know, I think that it, it feels very much like it's, the space is, is filled with women. And, you know, I think that um, to try to hopefully make this next generation, as I know you also talk about, um, more equitable, even in that space where more boys are stepping up and more men are stepping up. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that as women, we're used to fighting these battles. Uh-huh. You know, we're just used to it. It's it's just kind of part of who we are. And and so, you know, we're we're the, the first to step up and say, oh, yeah, sure. I'll take on that battle, too. Somebody has to do it. Um, and, you know, so then it is usually us. But I, I want to talk about how you got into this space um, a little bit about growing up, because I, I think you said uh, your your dad is um, Indian or you got it. Mm-hmm. and your mom is Mexican-American. You got it. Okay. So tell me a little bit, I know you talk a lot about your experience um, with that. And, and, you know, if you want to tell people a little bit about, about that. Yeah. You know, I think probably three things growing up have shaped me and how I see the work I do and how I see myself, my identity, my role as a man of color in in this, all of that. Um, So my father is Indian, born in Tanzania, Africa. He actually didn't graduate high school, but found his way to a trade school and um, was a refrigerator repair person. So he immigrated to the United States, Chicago, um, and worked for Montgomery Wards. Um, and wow. so I can always tell uh, like who's my in my age bracket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. I was going to say that, like, that name feels like a blast from the past. Is that still yeah, tell me about it. right? When I, say, when I say that, sometimes I can just look in the audience and people are like, I have no idea what Montgomery Wards is. But, uh, mm-hmm. so, um, so he was the person you call when your refrigerator broke down or whatever it may be, right? Um, so he met my mom on a dating service 
Um, I know. And I, I said, I told my dad, I was like, they had dating services back then. He's like, yes, it like so. a video dating service, probably. I, I actually got to ask more about it. But I know all I know is he, um, he was number three. And the first two said, the uh, first two people said, uh, my mom was number three on the list that they gave. The first two said no. And my mom said yes. And so there it is. They, they met in Chicago. Um, and I was born in Chicago and moved out to Portland. So what I'd say about like that part um, was, you know, I think there's a lot of similarities in Indian and uh, Latinx culture, actually, you know, when it comes to family and, you know, how we are other centered and this idea of just uh, immigrant kind of backgrounds, all, I mean, so many different things, but it was interesting trying to navigate, you know, um, a couple of things here. One was, we were a brown family and we moved out to Portland, Oregon in the 80s and at that in, in a suburb of Portland called Tigard. And so we were very quickly, <clears throat> it was very easy for me to see that we are one of very few people of color in a very predominantly white space. And when I talk about white, not just like white looking, but kind of white culture, white acting, white kind of ways of being. And so I think on one hand, part of what has really shaped me was being a brown person in predominantly white spaces everywhere I went, whether it was a store person or whether it was um, my school or whether it was a, you know, the curriculum we were learning in school, everything was kind of reinforcing this idea that I didn't really belong um, or that there wasn't really space or that the only way for me to belong was to assimilate as much as possible in the space. So I think that just had a huge impact trying to figure out you know home culture and and getting you know reinforced at home you know in in subtle ways and overt ways you know cultural norms and cultural ways of being and those same ways of being at home were not really accepted or appreciated in school made a decision uh when she was raising my daughters to do her best to kind of distance from culture and have her child children assimilate. Yeah. And a like lot many, of people did that, right? Yeah. It's a really common experience in the Latino community. Uh, and also I think in immigrant communities in general. And so one of the, the things around that was that my mother really never grew up deeply connected to her cultural roots or identity. Uh, my dad was much more connected, um, to his cultural roots and identity growing up in another country, all those kinds of things. So on the Latinx side, uh, for me, it was one of those things that, again, a sense of belonging where you have this sense that, yes, I am Mexican. And yes, it's something that I um, want to be connected to, but I don't know how to feel connected. I don't know if I really belong. And so that kind of experience growing up of both dealing in a, in a kind of a big, body of whiteness that is saying, hey, you don't belong. You, you know, the only way you can really gain any kind of acceptance or standing or access is to assimilate kind of as much as possible to be in a home or part of your identity that you really want to connect with. You don't feel a strong connection to, right? And then on the other side with my father, kind of some like a classic immigrant um, kind of story of come here, work hard, don't talk about identity, don't talk. I, I don't, like, I don't think I, ever. I, I know I never had a conversation about race or identity with my dad ever in my entire life. I didn't actually go with my mother either. I was more apt if it was going to happen to happen with my mom. So these con conversations, I was having this very marginalized experience, extremely marginalized experience in school and everywhere I kind of went, but there wasn't a place to really talk about it in our home growing up. So and they was, didn't like share stories about um, their childhood as, you know, as in their culture. They, you know, that's an interesting thing. So yes, and so I would get stories primarily from my father about what it meant to grow up in, you know, Tanzania. He, I mean, he has no shortage of stories of growing up. And I so in that sense, yeah, culture is being passed down to you in, in all kinds of subtle ways. Just they're, in, they're embedded in the stories that he tells, but he didn't, what, 
so I would understand his experience growing up. I certainly would understand kind of cultural norms around what it means to be Indian, things you do, you don't do, how you treat your elders, how you refer to them. I mean, all those kinds of things were very present. And when it came to issues of identity as it relates to what it means to be here in the United States and what's what does it mean, Henny, for you to be a brown person in an all-white school or what does it mean for you to be Indian and Mexican or you know, how is it going for you? Like those conversations were just not had. So the, uh, the conversation about any conversation about identity culture was almost past tense. It was how my dad experienced it growing up. Um, and how uh, am I, and it was not. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Not existing on my mom's side. Mm -hmm. They almost just didn't, they almost just wanted you to assimilate and not, you know, like sort of, we struggled so that you can assimilate and be part of that. Yeah, and I don't think it was even that over. And I don't know if want is as much as like, um, like on my mom's side, I think my mom was just trying to survive a lot of different things. You know, our home was not the safest home growing up. And I think she was just doing her best to take care of us. And on my dad's side, I think it was go to school, work hard, do your best. It wasn't like, hey, don't be proud of your culture. Try to get closer to whiteness, any of those kinds of things. It was just... um just put your head down and work. And these aren't conversations. It, the subtle things were like, Hey, I never got taught home languages, you know? So I'm, I don't speak Spanish. I don't speak, my dad speaks seven different languages. I don't speak any of them. Hmm. Um, and so subtle things like that kind of push the assimilation process in some ways along, but it was never overt. Like, Hey, we want you to be assimilated. It was more just, go to school, work, <laughs> go to school, work hard. And that without, and I'm sure it's something we'll talk about, without an intentional conversation about how do you nurture identity? Mm -hmm. How do you support that? I think if you don't have that with kids of color or anybody who has a marginalized identity, then dominant culture is going to take over that work for you. Like yeah. the conversation is always happening. Either you intentionally have it at home and do you what you're supposed to do, or you roll the dice and let everything else do the teaching for you. And right. I think that's what happened in my case. And that's interesting also as a parent <clears throat> raising kids now, you know, uh, to even say as, you know, we're obviously we're a white household and to even say to our, our kids, you know, I wonder like, do they even ask their friends, um, you know, their friends of color about their culture and, and their experience and everything? That's a very interesting thing because I don't know that I've ever asked them if they, if they ask, you know, about, hey, can you tell me more about what's it like, you know, anything as much as they'll they'll share and just to recognize the fact of, hey, I want to know more about your experience. Yeah, you know, I so here's with Amina, my daughter, um, you know, obviously in my my career path and personal journey, there was a, a, an awakening and a kind of a a long journey around my own identity. And when I had Amina, my daughter, who's 10 now, um, her, you know, the, the gift in what happened with my mom and dad in terms of kind of the lack of conversation around identity and nurturing identity was that in some ways, the curse was I got to experience the, the pain of it. The gift is I got to learn how do I want to be a parent um, and how do I grow from that? And so when we had Amina, and I think most, I think this is super important for white parents, um, but I think it's um, important for all parents. We had to have an intentional conversation about um, both our, where we see ourselves an inclusive, as an inclusive household. What does that actually mean? Right. Right. And how do we want to talk about issues of race, gender, sexual orientation, 
able-bodiedness, all, all of that, right? Like in, for me, doing enough of this work around race and, and all that kind of stuff, I'd seen parents after parents after parents, and this is across the spectrum from parents of color to white parents saying like, I don't know how to have this conversation about race. I don't know when to have the conversation about race. I don't, but, and in that kind of like paralysis around, I don't know, I don't know, which means we're not having it. The conversation's already happening. Like the conversation is the kid, the, the world is already having a conversation with our kids. It's, about. it's too, it's too touchy a subject to, to, to bring out, to talk about. So well, they're uncomfortable. Right. And so then we don't, and, but we have to remember, like, think about growing up, like mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Mm. What are little girls made of? Mm. Sugar and spice and everything. Like, like, like the, the narratives are coming at such a, like a fast pace. So we had to be, I felt really, really intentional about what it means to affirm our child's identity. So for her as a young girl of color, like, what does that mean? How do we intentionally do that? How do we affirm the identities of people who are diverse from her, right? What does that mean? And then for me, what was the two things that were just just as important was I didn't want her to be just kind of an unconscious consumer of culture, just consuming everything and not really being critical about what she's consuming or inquisitive about or curious about what she's consuming or challenging, especially as a girl, especially as a, a person of color. Like I really did not want that for her as a parent, right? Um, and I wanted her to be able to be a more conscious consumer of culture if she was going to do that. And then I wanted her to be able to discern, hey, when do I challenge what I'm seeing happening in the space, whether it's what's going on in a movie or whether it's some, what this kid said on the playground and when do I not challenge? So it was like, hey, how do we affirm? How do we help her discern? And how do we help her act? And so for, for us, that meant a plethora of things, whether it was we were very conscious with Amina um, and and some people will feel this wasn't the right thing. And I think, you know, I don't have a lot of judgment on how we parent because I just think it's such a difficult thing. But for me early on, I knew as soon as Amina got to public school, she was going to be kind of engulfed in whiteness. Her teachers were going to be probably white, the curriculum, all this kind of stuff. So there was going to be no reinforcement, no no lack of reinforcement to kind of white as the standard, like the standard of smart, the standard of beauty, the standard kind of norms. Of ways the one like cultural fair they have a year. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. So for me then what, for what was important with Amina for us, what was important for Amina was that we really built in this solid foundation. So we were really clear when she was reading books, they were predominantly, if not all by authors of color, by people of color with images of color. Like we were really conscious of that. Her dolls that she played with, work all shades from light brown to dark black, right? Um, early on, the movies that she saw or what we put in front of her, we were really discerning, like, who are the characters in this book? Do they represent the broad range mm -hmm. of people that we want her to be exposed to, whether it was sexual orientation or whether it was... So... And that's and, not easy to do for young kids. Um, no. Really and, and, parent, I, and, and as a parent, I, you know, I used to, as a parent, I used to be like, wow, I can't, I'm never gonna have my kid watch TV, all these kinds of things. Now I'm gonna be constantly parenting. And then you become a parent and you're like, oh God, I I cannot sit with this kid for 24 seven. Like, okay, watch a little TV, do whatever, you know, like- hundred percent, I gotta get that done. <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. It's like, I cannot do this. So so I had to be, you know, and then as a single parent now with Amina, like had to be really discerning about like, hey, where, what are the shows? And what was important for me with the books and and with all the shows, was that not like when I was reading a book to Amina, whatever book it was, that wasn't just reading a book and just making sure that she was supposed to, I was actually asking her like, hey, what do you think about, you know, this, whatever it may be, like this character, why do you think she's doing this or that? Or, you know, I remember having intentional conversations with Amina where I put her hand next to mine and I said, look, your skin is lighter than mine. Which one's better? Mm. Right? And just having a conversation with her about like, hey, does it act, like there's no better skin color? Like at a young age, like there was like just the concretes. Can we notice that race exists 
Can we notice that there's issues of gender and how that gets experienced or how people even identify around gender is different? What does that mean for her? I remember there was a turning point for me with her because I, I, she was like eight or something like that. And I, eight or nine, we saw some show and she was like, you know, I'm just noticing there's only one woman in the whole movie, in the whole show. I was like, oh my God, this is the best moment of my life. (laughs) I I wanted her just to be conscious of like, because I think that's as any marginalized identity, I think these are the subtle ways we kind of internalize things. It's like, hey, we're not represented. We're only put in particular, when we are, we're only put in particular roles Mm -hmm. and um, shown in a very particular way. In order to get standing, we have to do X, Y, or Z and the court of public opinion. So I think I wanted her to see that like, hey, when these don't exist, it's not, that's not the norm. It's not normal. It's not okay. And it's okay to challenge that, ask about that. And then it's okay to kind of direct her to seeing like, hey, what do, what do women look like in all different kinds of depictions? Um, can she, can we find someone who looks like her or any of those things? So all of that is there, you know, like, I just think it was, and I think for white folks, what I've noticed in working with white families is they're just not sure how to have this conversation or how to um, like when you like how to model in some ways, a curiosity about someone else's experience. Right. Mm-hmm. And not just assume that mine's just the central experience. I think kids are just in general, you know, self-centric in that way that ha- developmentally. So I think as parents, part of our role is to, infuse a sense of curiosity about experiences different than theirs versus have them fear or build a sense of fear or trepidation about experiences different than theirs. Well, and I think there's this whole thing also, um, you know, when you're, when, when kids are taught from a young age, everybody's the same love, you know, everybody is, you know, we're all equal. We're all this, we're all that, you know, and, and I think that that makes it scary for anybody you know uh to to point out the differences right to say in a space like that to be the one to say like hey you know what 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 is your culture what you know what is your backgrounds and everything because then you're going against the well we're all one and we're all you know and, and and there's so then you're sort of like I don't know. Did I just do something? Did I did I just bring up a conversation that we're you know that we're not supposed to have because we're all we don't see color and we don't this and we you know so so I think that then you're instilling in kids and adults. I think as an adult, it's scary to to bring that yes. and that you know if I point that out, then I am the one who is making the claim that wait a minute, we're not all exactly the same. We are different and, you know, better, not better, whatever, obviously just different experiences, but we're still pointing that out. And that's scary as shit to do in a, in a world where, you know, we're supposed to be from a time you're young, like we're all one and we're all, you know, so, so I think that, and I think that that's, what's so great about what you do in the workplace, which I'm going to have you talk more about. But I think one thing that's wonderful about that is that so many of us as kids, um, you know, our generation, the generation before, I, I hope it's getting better, although now, you know, with Florida and everything. <laughs> um, but I think that the one thing is that we didn't get this education, right? We did grow up on the, you know, on the Disney movies that mm-hmm. were just that's what it was. And we didn't question them the way you've told your daughter to. And so I think that one thing that's amazing, not only with the workshops and everything in these workspaces to make the workspace better, but I think that that people are getting the education they never got um, when they were in school. And I think that once you're once you're shown how to do this in a way um, that's productive yet, you know, gentle and all that, that then you are going to start noticing those things in your home as a parent, you are going to start, you know, um, recognizing things that you probably never recognized before, you know, um, just by virtue of now that being a part of your experience and, you know, in the workplace. So, you know, the same way you bring home stress from work or you bring home, you know, like, those feelings of oh wait a minute i have a different responsibility now um and i i now i'm i'm noticing things maybe that we're doing in our home that that 
don't correlate or respond to what I'm learning in the workplace. And so there's this ripple effect in what you're doing and having this included in the workplace. So talk to me a little bit about that and, and what your, you know, your goal is. Yeah, I think, um, oh, I cannot agree more with what you just said. Um, so let me, let me start with like, just so people have a sense of like on the workspace side of it, where it stands for me. So one of the things I mentioned was, you know, there's these things that really impacted me growing up. Uh, some of it was my family identity. The one thing that I will say on the work side that had the most impact was that um, at 16, my dad left uh, my family more or less when I was young. Um, and so my mom raised me and my two sisters um, working at a 7-Eleven. Um, so my dad wasn't doing child support or anything like that. So <clears throat> she did her very best um, to do everything she could to, to make sure we could just get by day to day. And for variety of reasons our family system kind of broke down and at 16 uh, my mom left the picture with my two sisters and I was what our school district would have categorized as houseless at that moment um I had a girlfriend who was 18 um and she happened to be getting kicked out of her house uh and uh we both were working part-time making three dollars and 35 cents an hour so you can date me on that age age me on that you know um and uh she we she could get on an apartment lease so there was a housing complex in downtown portland that took up this kind of massive square block um and it was called the civic and it was um extremely extremely low-income housing uh it was almost like out of the out of a book um, but it was what we could afford it was i remember this now it's like 194 dollars, and all the utilities were paid included wow. in that so at that time the the you know for someone who's making three dollars and 35 cents an hour and this and that like the utilities were really important and when i was in that housing complex what was interesting was that i mean lots of things but the thing that is most memorable for the work stuff is that everywhere you looked, people were just trying to survive. Mm. Whether it was like the drug dealer across the way or all the houselessness that was around me or the prostitution in the hallway, everybody, no one felt like they had a sense of agency or like there was something we could do about the space that we're in. Certainly I didn't feel like in that space, I mattered much. Like you, you, it was hard to believe that you could matter when you're living in the kind of conditions you're in. And so everything was just survival. And one of the outcomes long-term of that was that part of what that created for me was just almost a, a hyper preoccupation with this idea of space. And I wanted to understand who's thriving in spaces and who's not. And how have we constructed spaces in which certain people very predictably are going to thrive and other people are not. And on the flip of that, what would it mean to cultivate spaces where people were thriving and identity wasn't a predictor of that? Um, and so whether you had this background or that background, you were in spaces that you felt a sense of belonging and connection to where you felt like you could contribute to your potential and that where you felt like you actually mattered. And so the work for me was, you know, and in the workspace, it really isn't work. It's super personal to me. You know, uh, I feel like I've been in, whether it was younger in school systems or whether it was in that co complex in structures that weren't really constructed for me um, or support me one way or the other. And so as I bring that into the workspace, one of the things I know noticed was that in our workspaces, we haven't really built workspaces that were really, uh, and certainly not inclusive, but really are, serve most people. And so part of our work is to help organizations understand, hey, how do we create workplaces in which people have a sense of belonging? We talk about valuing diversity, but much like what you just talked about earlier, we, we talk about valuing diversity, but we we kind of want homogeneity. You know, like we, we want things to be homogenous, right? And when they're not homogenous, we get, right? So we say we want diversity and inclusion, but in organizations, what you'll see is that the moment you start challenging things, the moment you bring a diverse perspective in, the moment, you know, all these kinds of things. And disproportionately, uh, people of color, women of color in particular, are really being, you can just 
Mars, if you, we do assessments of organizations and sometimes I'm like, I don't even know why we're doing assessments because I can tell you what this assessment is going to say. Women of color are having marginalized experiences of their organization, right? And then you add on the other identities and it becomes that much more and men of color right there and all that. So part of what we want to help organization do is how do we create how do we rethink the culture of our organization? How do we rethink how we lead the organization? How do we even rethink how we are doing what we do so we're not creating in our product disproportionate or disparities that we don't want to be creating? So that's been the work at the Center for Equity and Inclusion for me. Um, and there's been a lot of learning, <laughs> a lot of ups and downs all around, lots of mistakes we've made along the way. But um, it's certainly been really, really valuable work. And to what you just said, it's so, so true because, um, you know, we spend anywhere from one to four years with an organization. So we're not the group that comes in and does a two hour implicit bias training right, or something. Right. We're really talking about, is it possible to transform the way we work? Right. Um, and that just takes, if anything, decades, because things are so entrenched. And one of the telltale signs I have when I'm working with leadership teams or executive leadership teams around, hey, is the work catching or not? is when we're in session and I'll have like a senior VP or whoever raise their hand and they'll be like, you know, I got to be honest, I'm having these conversations and it's impacting my relationships at home. Like it's, they'll say this again and like, oh, either like my relationships are becoming a little more strained at home because I'm, I'm bringing conversations into oh, my house. Warm, yeah. yeah, that we're nice to be, or like I'm noticing like we as a, again, we as a white family have never actually talked about race when it's not just some traumatic thing that we see on CNN. Right. right. Like it's like the day to day. Hey, have you noticed where there's only one person of color in our neighborhood? What do you think their experience is? Or why do you think that is? Or whatever it ends up being, all these things that you said, all these noticings you start to see about race or gender yeah. or sexual orientation start to bleed into like, oh, and so that's always a telltale sign when people, because our thing is like, hey, for an organization to move the work well, they have to be incredibly strategic uh, because it's, you know, systems of oppression have been very strategic around how they integrate themselves into our workspaces and home spaces, all this stuff. So you have to be strategic, but you have to balance that out with a deep personalization. So people have to actually feel connected to these issues. And because that's where you're only going to do something bold or be willing to take risks when you care about it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, so the more people are personalizing, the more they're willing to act on that. But the more they're personalizing, the more they're seeing it like, oh, wait a minute. This is about my personal journey around identity as much as it is about our our mission of our organization and how we live into that mission. You know, so it's interesting. Oh, my gosh. It's so interesting to me. I'm wondering, though, for for people, you know, who are listening, who are maybe small business owners or um, teachers of classroom, you know, in classrooms or you know, doctors who have a practice or, or whatever it is, what are some non-negotiables and some um, small changes that people can make right away almost um, just in order to get, kind of just move the needle a little bit, you know, like yeah. without having to fully integrate, even though obviously that's amazing and should be the goal for all businesses. Um, but you know, for someone who just is thinking to themselves, you know, I, okay, I, I want to do that. You know, I'm a startup, I'm a small business. Yeah. I'm a, you know, what, what can you, what advice can you give to them? Yeah. I, so there's a couple of things that I would say that are just like really, and I just had an experience yesterday. So, and you see this actually happening in Florida again, when we talk about how we've been educated, when we don't include multiple perspectives of how of history when we don't include multiple perspectives of other lived experiences when when like the experience of black folks or brown folks are just in like the civil rights chapter that we read and we don't hear anything else about any, you know and we hear about martin luther king and maybe malcolm x and that's it of course no women of color any of those things right one of the downsides many of the many downsides is that white folks sometimes assume that everybody's experience of institutions is the same. So school is an equal playing field or the workplace is an equal playing field. And all you have to do is just work hard, try hard. It's a meritocracy, right? Uh, so part of what that means is that um, white folks aren't always clear about cultural norms 
and some basic cultural norms that exist in communities of color. Um, and they're not, they view themselves as like good white people, which they very may well be. The flip side of that coin is this, folks of color have never really engaged in any institution in the United States that has really served them, right? And not kind of totally exploited them one way or the other. So we have a very historically, whether it's our medical institutions, whether it's our education institutions, you can look across the board, certainly justice system, all these things. And you could say at its roots, they were often designed in exclusion of people of color um, or and they operate in oppressive manner. So what that means is that most folks of color come into spaces, white spaces, with some degree of guardedness and with some degree of trepidation and just looking around, right? And so we're, what I think about it is inclusion is a verb, is one way I think about this. We mean like as a person of color, I'm looking for the signs in anywhere I go that it's one, safe, and two, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm wanted in that space. And those are signs. So as small business owners, and not just wanted to fulfill a quota. Yeah, like I belong in this space that I'm appreciated. People want to connect with me, all that. So when I think like, what are the little things to do? Like, so with Amina, culturally speaking, um, she grows up and she's taught from the get-go, you acknowledge every adult that comes in your path. Like you never don't acknowledge. You acknowledge it. You never, every adult is an auntie or an uncle, a mister or a missus, right? So every adult automatically is, is you respect your adults. Like that is a a very, Amina would know this inside and out. If anybody comes to the house, into our house, and she was playing in her playroom where she was playing in another room, and she, like we have room stairs, and she didn't come out of her room downstairs to say hello, like she would be in trouble for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we're at the store, um, it's really important that she says, hello, thank you. Um, she greets people. She acknowledges them when we walk by, like, hello, how are you doing? And that's a very, to me, it's a very cultural thing. Like people of color greet each other. We say hello to each other. We acknowledge each other. It's like a a thing. And sometimes it's a head nod. Sometimes it's a, hey, what's up? Sometimes it's just a, you know, a, a, just a general hello. So one of the things I noticed is that's not always the case. So when we work with teachers, it's so funny. Um, we have a, about a third of our works in education. I worked with someone who was um, in education forever and we were, we were doing our year long thing. And she's like, one of the first things we need to do is start figuring out how do we step working with teachers on establishing relationships with kids. And so we're going to have to work with them on greeting their kids in the classroom. And I was like, what? And I'm like, no, this is going to sound way too patronizing. Like, I do not want to do this to like teachers who've been in the business. And she's like, no, you don't understand. Teachers do not greet their classrooms. So like what they're used to doing is kids come in the classroom. Okay, everyone, here's the essential question on the board. Get, uh, stop talking, da, 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 get the pencil out. You have 30 seconds or three minutes, right? Essential question. Here's the lesson plan and boom, not a hello. How you doing? It's great to see everybody. What's going on? Greeting them at the door, right? But kids... Are, so again, this is where that, you know, like we're used to being in relationship. The the communities of color are built on relationship, right? Not on like productivity and efficiency and individuality and all those kinds of things. Communities of color are built on kind of community and connection and relationship, all these kinds of things. And so as a business owner, one of the things I could say is like, when pe- like when I walk into a restaurant, Almost every person, and especially it, it, this is probably, I imagine different on the East Coast. It's certainly um, in white spaces. When I walk into any restaurant, the first thing I'm doing is looking around and saying, who's in this restaurant? Are there other people of color in this restaurant? How is the person, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I think, you know, how we greet people, that we get to know their names, that, uh, you know, uh, that we are acknowledging them in the space, that we're reaching out, like, hey, how are you doing? And I, you know, I was just had a doctor's appointment yesterday, and this was so classic to me, person of color. He was a, I sought out a, a doctor of color, um, and so I haven't had I I've been bad. I haven't had all the appointments I'm supposed to have. So this was the first time I've had I've actually been to a doctor, uh, and so he's like, uh, we're talking, uh, you know, we're doing a Zoom. It was on Zoom too. So he was like, all right. So he's he's like, nice to meet you. Here's my name. 
da, 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 da. And then he's like, so let me run through some of the stuff. And we start going through, you know, all the things, you know, have you had this? Have you had that? What's your, all this, what's your family history? And so then we get through that in like, um, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes or something like that. And he's like, okay, enough about this. I want to know about you. Like, um, tell me, are you married? Do you have kids? Do you play sports? Do you do? And so we got in this whole conversation somehow. I'm a big Knicks fan. So we got in a huge conversation about Brunson on the Knicks and, you know, this and that, and then raising a daughter because he has a daughter. And I mean, it's, and it was like a very personable conversation. And to me, that felt like such a person of color moment of like, hey, I am your doctor, but we're in relationship. I'm in your, I'm in a relationship with you as a doctor. So even if someone's coming into your store, it's like, hey, you're my customer and we're in relationship. And I want to acknowledge you. I want to greet you. I want you to feel welcomed in the store. So there might be a pride flag here. There might be a this thing there or that thing. That just all the little signs that let people know that, hey, if you come from a diverse or non-dominant community or culture, we see you. We recognize you. We want you in this space. I love that. And I, I don't know. I think that's kind of like you talk about like what are some of the basic things, you know, for, for educators. One of the things we've talked about is, you know, names are such a big deal in communities of color. And oftentimes we're given names with meanings. Um, and so and those meanings have deep like root, root roots and cultural connections and you know, I wrote about this in the book that like, you know, my name was in growing up was a constant reminder that I didn't belong the way teachers kind of just butchered the name where kids made fun of it. And it's, it's a sad thing in some ways, because it, my name was supposed to really root me in what I belong to and how, um, and so one of the things we even work with teachers is like, Hey, how do I create a lesson plan where we talk about names, where we celebrate each other's names, where we, you know, and we create a whole lesson plan around like the cultural identity of ourselves or how our names fit in that cultural identity. So there's things that we can do small little actions around greeting each other, acknowledging each other, putting different signs up that I think give people a sense that I belong. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I love the name thing. So, I mean, I love that so much. And I love it so much more like within the family tree. <laughs> you know, yeah. the family tree gets to be so problematic. And <laughs> so the name, you know, where you just are kind of learning more about yourself is, I think, really amazing. And um, yeah, I mean, I I feel very much, um, you know, I'm I feel very much when I when I walk into a, a store um, where you know that they're accepting and inclusive and everything, um, I mean, I guess, depending where you are, uh, I feel like I want to give them my business. You know, I feel like, I mean, I think that obviously, look, it depends where you're located or, you know, the, the are you in a red area, the blue area, you know? Um, but I think that also, again, I'm going to bring it back to the home, same kind of thing, right? Like, you know, to have those signs places, I mean, even just, uh, you know, artwork that is representative yeah. and a conversation piece, you know, um, something, you know, a book in the bathroom, you know, just sitting there when a kid hopefully forgets to bring his phone in and needs to like read a book or, you know, just those like strategically placed things that um, hopefully, you know, unconsciously they're going to just pick up or, you know, pick up on. Um, and and so, you know, those little things that I, I do realize, obviously, you know, that's a very superficial um, thing to do as far as like, you know, you're not getting very deep, but it's a start. It is a start. And I think it's important. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's huge. I think, I mean, I think there's times and places like I've had with Amina um, that are like artwork on the wall is a great example. Like 
the house is filled with images that don't just reflect us, right. like like cultures that are different than hers. Um, there's certainly books, all these things. And there's, t- I think, again, because when you go out into the world, if you're not paying attention, like um, Froene Kiros is the co-founder of the Center for Equity and Inclusion. She's a black woman. And um, when we, we had a chance to develop and pur- purchase and develop a building for the center. And on the wall, we... On the outside of the wall, we had a chance to build a mural. And one of the things that um, we had said is, hey, this is a rare op- a privilege in some ways uh, for that we get to be able to have the resource to create a mural and a, on a big wall in a ma- kind of a predominant major street in Portland. And so how do we want to depict it? So we said, Let's, we don't want to predict anything kind of traumatizing about people of color or anything like that. But like, how do we like depict so we put this image of these girls of color and they're all holding a brick with a certain word and we just wanted that to depict like what's the possibility you know of us and so part of why we like us at our best and highest potential to me like you have these young girls of color at different ages and different shades it's just such a, it's a super cool image and um but we wanted to do that because we know that if you just walk down on the day to day, you're going to get so much reinforcement around kind of just a dominant kind of look or personality. So these things I think really matter. The small things in the house, on the walls, the books that you're reading matter. And then there's other places and moments to have the deeper conversations, you know? Uh, And, and I think being intentional about it, you know, I'm always mixed as a parent, like, like one time we went, there's a, there's kind of a well-off neighborhood about 15 minutes away from where we live. And it's a pretty, it's pretty desperate between that area and where I, we've chosen to live here in Portland, which is, you know, a very diverse area. And, um, and so we were on the playground. We, I took her to the school, this elementary school that has this huge playground, has this like turf soccer field, has like actually two playgrounds massive soccer and so we were playing and I just had her look and I was just like hey do you notice the difference between Chapman's playground and what which is what we were on and like what do you notice about this and look and she's like wow it has this 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 what do you notice about who's like all the people around here right um and then what do you notice about James John's playground which is the one that in our neighborhood And, and I'm like and that's a that was a moment where we had a more intentional conversation about hey not like the day-to-day name calling kind of racism but the beginnings I wanted to see like hey you know why do some people get access to resources like this playground and why is your playground not even have a soccer field but this has a turf like what about that like what's the difference here Mina and sometimes as a parent so I want to be strategic about that and then sometimes I'm like I just need her to be 10 and just play and I don't want like I want so it's this balance like hey when I want her to be conscious I want her to be critical I don't want her to be sitting on a playground that's not like I want her to like like her playground at her school and say oh well this is the norm for me because I'm a person of color I just have a second level standing right yeah. I want her to be critical like hey this isn't right and at the same time I want her to just have fun play be a kid so it's it's balancing all I mean as a parent but um balancing all of that but I do think picking your your spots for the deeper conversation and making sure that your your child is consistently engaging with yeah. in several ways difference Right. And what you said about where you live, um, you know, and how it was intentional that you live there. I think that there's so many ways that we can do that, um, you know, as parents, like, you know, where's our church or synagogue or mosque or, you know, where, where, you know, does it doesn't have to be right in our town. Um, you know, where are we going to, you know, eat on a Friday night? Are we always going to the American restaurant on the corner or are, you know, I think that there's, there's so many ways that um, don't involve, you know, if you're not prepared or you don't feel like you have the know how to have these discussions, there are so many ways to do that. And I feel like also, um, you know, in these workspaces and everything, again, the same thing, you know, if you don't have the know how or the 
or the funding, which, you know, hopefully I know a lot of companies do um, and are choosing to use it in other ways. But, you know, if you truly are, you know, a small business or whatever, like just these um, these small changes, you know, of, you know, are we are we acknowledging all the holidays? Are we acknowledging, you know, these kinds of things? And um, I know it's easier said than done, but it is those things are are doable. They're huge. I mean, like, like, um, I have, there are restaurants that I go to just because I get great customer service. <laughs> like, you know, like just because I feel like I can go there and I'm not questioning yeah. whether the service I'm getting is because of how I look or any of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so it is, um, it is difficult and it's also not, it's good business, you yeah. know, on some, on some <laughs> right. Hey, you know, I don't, I, as a, person of color who's pretty race conscious I don't need a massive amount from me I just need to be like I need to come in I need to be treated well I need you know a good greeting uh a, you know someone happy to see me like you know like yeah. someone willing to help me you know if I'm at, safe and you want yeah, to feel yeah. I want someone to be like hey not assuming I don't have 100 browsing you know like all that kind of stuff so it's it's not, in some levels, it's just good business. Um, but it, we're not used to, I think, understanding that different people may need different things to feel a sense of belonging. I think that's what equity ultimately is, is understanding that people start at different starting points. And so what they need to get to this common outcome may be different, right? So if we want the common outcome is to have a good customer experience, right? Or a returning customer, then what a black or brown person may need from you as a business is going to be different given the history of how business has been done with people of color, mm-hmm. right? So there's just a historic distrust that people of color bring into any institution that we have to account for. And I, I just think it doesn't serve white folks to get defensive about it. Like, it's like, we're not saying you individually today are a bad human being because how we've been set up. We are saying that, hey, we haven't set things up well for folks of color. So what are the things we can do to let people know, like, hey, we want to operate a little differently with you? Right. You know? and what are you doing to make sure? Yeah. That, yeah. Right. And I think that every parent and, and every uh, manager, every educator, every everyone can can sit and really like reflect in that. And, and, and that's a great starting off point. If nothing else, what am I doing? Am I doing anything? You know, just because of course, you know, my, my kid has uh, friends who are people of color or my, you know, I have people in my workplace or whatever. That's, that's the minimal, right? That's, that's the base level. And, and, you know, I think that people are like, yep, I do it you know, because those, they, they, they hit those boxes. Um, so I tell everybody a little bit about the book and, you know, and who is it for? What, you know, what, what are you hoping people will take away from it? Yeah. So the book is, um, called an other world. So it's kind of a play on that. So a N space other world, um, and it spans home school and work. So three sections of our lives. Um, and I really wanted people to really dive into this idea of just ultimately the idea of relationship and how do we establish relationships in which we can thrive and where we have a real sense of belonging. We can bring our full authentic selves to it. We feel a sense of agency and we feel like we're in relationships that where people can hold us accountable to being our very best selves, aren't afraid to do that. What happens when we do that? Because for folks of color, you know, there's a section in the work section where basically things don't go well and in an initiative I'm working with and, and people get really hurt. And one of the lessons for me was like, Hey, if I keep waiting for these systems to shift and change, I'm, for me to feel a sense of freedom or for me to feel a sense of joy or a sense of belonging, I will be waiting for a very long time. So I want to do the work to continue to chip away, challenge the status quo, all that kind of stuff. And at the same time, I want to figure out where does joy live now for me? Where it has even a unique sense of freedom for people of color live for us. And to me, that's in our, where's belongings in our relationships. And yet I've worked with so many folks of color who feel like, well, 
I don't speak the language, so therefore I don't belong. Or, you know, I'm mixed. I have white in me and I'm black and I don't feel like I belong or I'm not, you know. And so there's so many ways in which we create our own barriers to belonging within our own communities. And I want us to get at like, hey, white, when we do that, white supremacy doesn't even need to do the work for, they don't need to divide and fight. We're doing that. Like, so like, why are we doing that to each other? Right. And so I don't want, it's not a book that's like critical of like people of color or saying it's more of just really highlighting when we do this well, what's possible. And I, and I think I, for me, I just wanted, that's what I wanted kind of, I think a different approach to diversity and inclusion, which is like, Hey, what are people of color needing? How do people of color find a sense of joy? How like, versus just how do we change the hearts and minds of white people? Right. right? So balanced approach, you know, and then take that for any marginalized identity, whether it's, you know, women or whether it is, you know, uh, sexual orientation and all the intersections around that. I think there's a good question for us to be asking, like, what do we need to be thriving, you know, in those spaces? Well, it sounds like a great book club book. It is. I love that. Well, that was the, so the whole hope. So my, my entire career has been around facilitation. So almost everything I've done, whether it's kids or whether it's teachers or whether it's now wherever I'm at, um, has always been in facilitating space. So I didn't want to write a book that was something that people read individually and was like, wow, that was a really good book. Mm-hmm. I think if you're going to get the most out of this book, you would have to read it with somebody. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And that's what I, I wanted. That. I wanted it to push us to being, I, I want people to disagree with the book. Like there's people, there's readers who are like, I just think you're wrong on this one letter to Amina or, you know, or you're slightly off or there's other places where people are like, no, I really see that or whatever. So my hope is that people would read this in community and use it to spark conversations, you know, about perspectives different than theirs or, you know, what the standard of success is or what joy looks like or whatever it ends up being. Um, so my hope is that that's what people do with it. Well, I certainly uh, will put it out there for everyone and Thank you. as a book club book. Um, and yeah, and, and I'm just, you know, I'm grateful for everything that you're doing and for taking the time to talk with us. Tell everyone where they can find you. Sure. Uh, Instagram right now that I am Hanif Fazel. Uh, they can go on my website, www.hanifazel.com. Um, and they can find information there and then they can just go on Amazon if they want, or Barnes and Noble, or even pre-order it. It's up for pre-order the book. You can pre-order now. And for an emerging author of color, the pre-orders actually really matter. Um, it's so hard to get a book published. I cannot believe how difficult it was to get a book published. Um, and so people's support of the book, I think really matters. I'm really wanting the publishing industry to see that diverse voices people will really invest in those because I there was a lot of, they won't to me, um, as well as I wrote the book a little differently. I didn't write it in a very linear way. And so different ways of storytelling can really resonate with diverse audiences. So the pre-orders help people really see that. So anywhere, any that would be helpful. Awesome. Well, I, I really, I'm grateful that you came. We'll have to come back and check in and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll maybe talk about the book and um, some more in depth. And thank you so much. It was so great to talk to you. Thank you. I really appreciate this. This is great. Absolutely.
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.